doesn't have a stolen base the entire season, so you're not going to run, you're not going to hit and run, you got to wait for a gapper. That is fair down the right field line. Giambi on his way to third, and they're going to wave him around. The throw misses a cutoff, man, shot into the plate, out of the plate. Derek Jeter with one of the most unbelievable plays you will ever see by a shortstop. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 76 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod, or if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call, 631 630-7377. I can't believe it. The streak is still going. The Yankees have now won 23 games in a row. And honestly, things just couldn't be better. (laughs) Boy, I heard some whoppers in my time, but that tops them all. (laughs) It is a bold-faced lie. The Yankees... Man, do I miss last week? I I never thought I'd be saying that. I never thought I'd be sitting here just wishing for uh, a random week in the middle of the season because... Ever since then, things have just been going downhill. They have not won a series since they played the Braves last week. I'm sorry, did you want me to add something to that? You keep going. They lost a series to the Angels. They split with the A's, which that was the beginning of the end. And they just lost a series to the fucking Orioles. And might I remind you, now it's interesting how perspective shifts, um, and we'll get into the other direction later on in the show, but I remember too when you talked about that split with the A's last time, if you recall, you said you were okay with that. You were like, yeah, no, I'm, you know, I can live with the split with the A's, you know, it depends what we do next. And you were sure right about that, because what happened next has not been good, especially after that 13-game winning streak. That's, that's gone and then some now. Like You basically just undid that. And this entire season... But in particular, the last two weeks or so, three weeks, have just been the epitome of that's baseball, Susan. Like the Yankees are really trying their best to define what John Sterling has meant all these years when he said that. Because they've been unbelievably hot and then unbelievably cold so much that it's pretty fun. It's funny at this point. Like, I mean, what else am I supposed to do besides fucking laugh? It's just been up and down and on the heels of greatness, they just absolutely embarrass themselves. I mean, the Orioles, every single game was won or lost by one run. Now, the Orioles are fucking 43 games out of first place. They're finished. They're just playing spoiler at this point. So the fact that the Yankees got beat by the Orioles at Yankee Stadium in the fashion that they did, I mean, listen, I was fortunate enough to go down to Virginia this past weekend to spend some time with some dear friends of mine who moved down to Mineral, Virginia, which is the definition of middle of nowhere. So I didn't really get to watch any of these games. I unfortunately had the privilege of just seeing them winning at certain points and being like, oh, they're winning 7-4. Gary Sanchez just hit his second home run, a grand slam. They're never going to lose this game. Then later on being like, oh, they lost 8-7. And like trying to laugh it off and just drink my White Claws if nothing (laughs) is wrong. Something about those basement-dwelling divisional opponents, man. Like they just, 
I don't know if it's it's a combination of, you know, maybe you sleep on those games a little bit. Maybe they know you because they play you so often, even though they're not good. Like, you know, you guys have it with the Orioles. We have it with, well, it was with the Marlins until the Nationals sold the farm. But, you know, just they're, it's the most annoying games to lose because you feel like you should win it, no problem. But something about those teams, they, they'll, they'll get your number in your division, you know? And I mean, barring Cole's performance versus the Angels, which honestly is probably one of, if not the most dominant pitching performance by a Yankee I've ever seen. I mean, he went seven innings. He had a 60% K percentage. Struck out more than half the batters he faced. No walks. uh, Had a 19.29 K per nine and a 0.15 XFIP and a 0.57 Sierra. It was just lights out and... He really ramped it up. He was pitching in his home area of Southern California where he grew up and and went to college. So family, friends were there, and he really put on a show for them. So salt of the earth. He drove his old car to the stadium and everything, (laughs) which apparently now that's that's like his car now, right? Like, isn't that the narrative? Oh, look, he's just like us. He drives a shitbox. So humble, that Cole. (laughs) And he struck out Otani three times. So we all know that that now means that Garrett Cole is... The superior player. That's all it took. Those three at bats. Well, I mean, let's let's hope he gets another chance to prove that this season. Hopefully, it's not too serious. But he got pulled today from the game with uh, they said hamstring tightness. But then Boone during the post game, he made some reference to an earlier game in the season where Cole worked through some difficulty and he didn't miss any starts and related it to this one. So we don't know as of recording right now, which again is Tuesday night, how long he's going to be out, if at all. But Cole, especially after that last performance, getting pulled and I think it was the fourth. I don't think it was the third. I think it was the fourth. That's that's not what you want. You guys were not able to come back from that. No, it was clear that he just did not have it tonight. I mean, I don't think he topped 99 miles per hour on his fastball and he could not locate his off-speed stuff. He went 3.2 innings, five hits, gave up three runs, a uh, home run, two walks, and only two strikeouts. So when Boone and the training staff approached the mound in the fourth inning, It looked like they were all looking at his pitching hand. I don't know if that is because he split a fingernail, had a blister, or if they were trying to, like, deke people watching. I really don't know what the deal was. I don't know if they were just all happened to be looking down as they talked about his hamstring. Okay, so speaking of looking down, this is completely off topic, and I apologize in advance. So we have a slightly new setup now where I'm using an extra windscreen to try and you know, prevent some of my some of my peas from popping too much, which those probably just did. I'm sorry, DJ <laughs> Bennington. I really hate that man. And it's funny because going back to you know how much we love slash hate slash make fun of home improvement on this show. All you can see in the camera is just the top half of my face, and I totally look like the neighbor <laughs> when I'm reacting because I'm like smiling and laughing at Emily, and all you could see are my eyes. <laughs> well, I mean. Uh-huh. I was just about to say, it wasn't really off topic because that's about the noise I made when I saw Cole coming out of the game. I was like, uh, uh. I knew there was a way to tie that in. <laughs> and not only Cole went down this week, but the Yankees' best reliever and a top two reliever in the league this year, Jonathan Loizaga, Johnny Lasagna himself, he went on the 10-day IL with right shoulder strain. Now, that is such an open-ended injury that... He could be back in 10 days, and he could be shut down for the season for all we know. Now, our pen is pretty deep, but without Johnny Luizaga and without Cole starting games, 
it's going to be very, very, very tough for this team to not only keep a wild card spot, but then also have any success in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, I could tell you from experience, uh, losing your ace is not fun, and it does not bode well for your postseason chances. You know what's funny, Em, is like I go back to, you're talking about just how, I mean, this is the definition of streaky, right? You win 13, and now suddenly you can't even put together two games in a row with an extra base hit or a walk, you know what I mean? And so more than ever, it's that we always say, you know, the goal, you got to get into the postseason, and then anything can happen. This team is the epitome of that, man. Like, if you guys make it, who the fuck knows who's going to show up at this point? It could be 13-game winning streak Yankees just plowing through shit, or it could be, oh my god, we can't beat the Orioles or the Blue Jays or the Angels. You guys have really shown, it's like, you genuinely don't know which Yankees are going to show up in any given week at this point in the season. And a glaringly obvious thing for, I mean, and it's glaringly obvious, even if they weren't playing as out of their minds as they have been, it's glaringly obvious, but nothing has highlighted the fact of how important Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton are to this lineup than seeing their splits when the team is losing, when the team is winning. I mean, not counting tonight's game because Fangraphs does not update that fast, but from September 3rd to the 6th, which has basically been this past weekend, Stanton's slash line is 125, 176, 313 for an OPS of 489. And Judge, his slash line is somehow even worse at 056, 056, 111 for an whopping OPS of 167. Now, I hope that DJ Bingington has some like death metal track to use because that is brutal. It's been really, really tough to watch. I mean, the lineup has not been able to carry the team without them. I'm sure, you know, there's been some wins here or there where they haven't hit well or they weren't playing and the team managed to win. But overall, it's very clear who the key guys in this lineup are who have been consistently key. So all an opposing team has to do is, even if the Yankees are hot, if you shut those two down, the rest of the team is probably not going to pick up the slack. I mean, I think after them, the highest weighted runs created of uh, qualified players is Gary Sanchez with like 108. And then Luke Void, I think maybe he's got like something around there. And then DJ LeMahieu at an even 100. Oh, so that is it, fucking putrid. It's precipitous after those two, yeah. The pitching also hasn't been very consistent. I mean, Andrew Heaney, he had a, a good outing tonight. I think he pitched a scoreless top of the ninth inning. But his last outing versus the Orioles is when they were winning 7-4. to four. He came in in the seventh inning and he proceeded to load the bases. And then he gave up four runs and gave up the lead. Now, they then show him in the dugout, and listen, let me let me just put this out there. I absolutely feel for this guy. I understand, this, well, I don't understand, but I can empathize the sort of pressure that these guys are under, especially for a team that is on the cusp of making it to the postseason. But Andrew Heaney was crying in the dugout. Crying. <sighs> okay, so... <laughs> Yes, he certainly was. And you know, it, it was it was interesting to me because you really see what happens when you're dealing with Yankee fans and a trade deadline acquisition that has not managed to endear himself to the fans over the past month. You, you don't... Normally with Yankees fans, there's always uh, a certain level of frustration and, you know, criticism and stuff. People were calling for Heaney's head. 
Like, normally it'd be like, oh, you know, oh, come on, Judge. Come on, Rizzo. This is like, this fucking piece of shit. This goddamn motherfucker. Wanted. Like, whoa, guys. Like, Well, especially because what did everyone... I mean, don't get me wrong. I was pretty upset about his implosion. And to be honest, though, not all that surprised because I think he's had one good start for the Yankees where he went seven innings. I think it was against the Angels at Yankee Stadium, and he was pretty lights out and it looked promising but he has not been able to replicate a performance like that and they moved him to the pen he has not been good I mean I I hope he's not on the postseason roster if they make it but I I don't really see a scenario where he's not or maybe they'll get rid of him for heel I don't know but he's not a good pitcher he wasn't on the Angels there was no way that he was suddenly going to become amazing here he was just filling a role but the Yankees don't really have time for shitty pitchers to just fill a role and blow games left and right. You, you know what it reminds me of? The Mets just got Brad Hand, who was on the Nationals earlier this season, and the reaction from Nationals fans on social media when they saw the Mets got Brad Hand, it's like, oh, thank God, please play him against us. Yeah, I mean, Brad Hand literally blew two saves in one game versus the Yankees in the beginning of the season, and then the next day blew another save versus the Yankees. It was a glorious weekend. Those are the the good old (laughs) times of yore. (laughs) And John mentioned it a few minutes ago, actually. It's just a funny funny thing that baseball does to us. I mean, last week we were talking about the Yankees' 13-game winning streak and how it was the first time a Yankees team has done that since 1961. Well, this team just set another franchise record because they are the first Yankees team since 1962 to go two consecutive games with no extra base hits and no walks. You can't write a better script than that. Of course, it had to be the team the next year from the 61 team that had the streak. Of course, it's now the 62 team that I guess was just futile. Well, you know, it made me laugh, too. I, I pointed this out while we were watching the postgame presser. Whoever the reporter was who was asking Aaron Boone about it, <laughs> you know how, like, when you bring something like that up, it, it's natural. You, you feel a little uncomfortable, so, like, you laugh a little bit. This guy was leaning in. It was like, Aaron, so <laughs> get a load of this shit. You guys, since <laughs> since 1962, and Aaron's just looking at him like, this, this is not funny. Like, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not finding this humorous at all right now. Yeah, bro, this isn't the fucking open night at the Laugh Factory. It's the Zoom room. Yeah, you're working on your tight five. So now the Yankees, they have to hope for a split versus Toronto. They lost last night. They lost tonight. Uh, They have two more versus them. Then they have three versus the Mets, which should be a good time. One versus Minnesota, a makeup game. Then three versus Baltimore. Three versus Cleveland. Then three versus Texas. Now, last week, I... um, inadvertently stepped in it by acting like an easy schedule was going to be easy because that's how I looked at this past week's schedule and the Yankees just got beat the fuck up. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, let me put my feet up and my hands behind my head because they got this in the bag. I'm still nervous. I shouldn't be nervous in September to play the fucking Texas Rangers. Yes, but the Yankees have given you Every single reason on earth to be nervous about it. Yeah, they truly have, especially because Toronto's, I mean... <laughs> Baltimore side. Toronto's pitching isn't even that good, but I'm not going to get into that. I mean, that's why Toronto is not really in the fight as much because their offense is insane, but their pitching has been fucking horrible. But of course, the Yankees are making them look like all Cy Young candidates. Uh, Yeah, you lost to Steven Matz today. John, how dare you bring that up during times like this? You want to talk about something happier? I do. All right, so 
Zach Scott got a DUI last week, <laughs> and everything has been great since then. Let me tell you. Um, Zach Scott, Mets martyr. <laughs> Mets martyr, yeah. You know what? So on a, on a serious note for a second, so we talked last week, the, you know, the topic du jour last episode was the whole thumbs down gate. And it's so funny how we even said last time how fast the news cycle moves, because that's barely even a blip anymore. Remember, that was the end of the world for a few days. So actually, Zach Scott in some ways did the Mets a favor by getting into trouble. And apparently the report was that he was at some kind of fundraiser at Steve Cohen's house. And people were trying to connect it to Steve Cohen. And it was like, okay, the event ended at like eight or nine and he got pulled over for a DUI at like four in the morning. So he had a full like work day worth of time to find, you know, to go somewhere and get so anyway. Zach Scott, he actually, they th all thought he left, but he was just in another wing of Cohen's house, just fucking pounding liquor. <laughs> just drinking by himself. I guess Scott left. Scott, wait, I hate two first names like that. Zach, not Scott. Well, you're probably not going to have to hear much more from him. So that's pretty <laughs> convenient. You know what? He... He, he truly died for our sins here because he took the heat off of Baez and Lindor. He made Steve Cohen's job way easier this offseason because now I'm surprised if everybody doesn't go. Sandy's gone. Zach Scott is gone. Luis Rojas is probably getting thrown out with the bathwater too. Like, clean house, man. And after that happened, to try and, you know, get rid of some of these other distractions, the Mets have just been winning since then. Just win, baby, right? We fucking swept the Marlins. We should have taken four or five from the Nationals, but we lost a close one yesterday. Took three or five from the Nats. Okay, not the best, but still won the series. And then we took the first game from the Marlins tonight. The Mets have won eight of their last 10 games. And you know what? It's, it's against bad teams, but it's, again, this is the stretch that we said. It's like, hey, if they're going to get right and build momentum, it's got to be right now. And they seem to be doing that. Particularly, you look at Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor, the two faces of the whole thumbs down thing. Baez, you know, being a rental and like, oh, he's not getting it done. Lindor, people already calling his contract bad in the first year of a 10-year <laughs> contract. Like, Okay, take a deep breath, people. Let me read off these numbers quick. In the last seven games, so that's, you know, figure a week since th thumbs down gate, as I keep calling it. <laughs> thumbs down gate. Thumbs down gate. Each of them has two home runs. Baez is slashing 346, 414, 654 for an OPS of 1.068. And Lindor is slashing 308, 367, 615 for a 982 OPS. This is what we want out of these two. If they can do that, and these are the players they are, man. Baez is streaky. There's going to be some weeks where he strikes out 10 times, but then you get a couple weeks of this when he gets hot. And if every you know if other people are holding it down around him, that's a great fucking piece. It's this is a conversation for later, but I would not mind having him back next year. We'll get into that another time. Especially when the other option is what like Jonathan VR or whoever the Mets put at second base. Like, is there honestly a better option than Baez? No, you know what the the next comparable thing is Jeff McNeil is a natural second baseman, but he's not Javi Baez at second base. You know, and not for nothing. He's proven himself to be a pretty damn solid utility player. He's been playing a good left field the last few games because uh, Dom Smith was on the bereavement list. So that kind of flexibility, I mean, you know, McNeil, I think, has team control for like another three, four seasons, something like that. So he's not going anywhere. So that versatility is good to have. But the bigger takeaway from all this for me is this whole narrative of Francisco Lindor being a bust and not getting it done. 
that's starting to change in a way that you really can't argue against. Like, did he have his struggles? Yeah, absolutely. But we are more and more consistently seeing the Francisco Lindor that we thought slash hoped we were getting, right? With the fast swing, just, you know, the occasional home run, sure, but just getting on base. Then once he gets on base, working that magic and being a wizard in the field, getting the full package together and now finally just adding those hits, finally. Man, if he could do something like this for the next however many years, I am so fucking excited to see him next year and moving forward as I'm at. Like, it's, I'm, I'm so at the point where it's like, yep, this, I'm already happy with the deal. Like, the opposite of people who are all doom and gloom. I, it didn't take much for me to be like, awesome, I'm happy. And especially because he's only like 27. Yeah, he's it's young. It's not like he's in the first year of his deal and he's fucking 31 and it's like, oh God, we have this guy till he's 40. Like, his contract is until he's like, I don't know, what, 37 or something like that? 38? Well, and that's what I'm saying. Even if it winds up a little bit of an albatross on the back end, if you get a good six, seven years of this kind of production out of him, sign me up all goddamn day. And especially since that's so frustrating to me because I hate that the term albatross for a contract gets used for, let's say, guys who have otherwise had great careers, not guys like Ellsbury who, you know, got injured and then only played for like two of their 10 years or whatever. Right. Because... Literally every long contract in Major League Baseball that goes to a player's twilight years, like their late 30s, early 40s, is an albatross because you're paying for their peak. You don't care about the back end. That's what they get because they have the leverage because that's how good they are. So anyone who expects like someone to be really good and play like they're 30 when they're fucking 38 is an idiot. I I'm sorry to say. That's just not going to happen unless they let them juice. Strange, the passing of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, man, things have been pretty good in Metsland. Uh, you know, we got to finish out this series against the Marlins. Hopefully another sweep. That would be dope. And then the test comes, right? We got the Yankees this weekend. We got the Cardinals after that. It's back to playing some competent teams, right? But, you know, as fast as the Mets seemed to lose that division lead that they had, and then they went from just a couple games back to like, oh, God, we're eight, nine games back, whatever it was. We're right back in it, man. We're three, four games out of both the division and the wild card. I mean, it'll probably be game or two different by the time you guys hear this. But point being, that deficit was erased in large part almost as fast as it was created, which is just the nature of the NL East this year. So, I mean, on top of that, man, we got good news that DeGrom's elbow apparently seems to be fine. He's technically eligible to possibly come off the IL in mid-September. It remains to be seen how much ramp up he needs to do. Uh, you know, I know he's throwing from like 100 feet. I think they said he just extended it to. I don't know if he's throwing off of an incline yet. So there's still work to be done. But hey, man, if the Mets can make something happen and you get Jacob DeGrom back at the end of September, that's not too shabby. And speaking of DeGrom, it was actually kind of funny. Sandy Alderson, he just further highlighted why he is probably on the chopping block with everybody else. He was talking about DeGrom's injury and, and him coming back. And first, Sandy said that Jacob DeGrom's elbow injury was a sprain slash partial tear of the UCL in his right elbow. But he emphasized that DeGrom is fine now. The ligament is perfectly intact at this point. Whatever condition existed before, it's resolved itself. But then he went on to say... Somebody goes out with a headline that it's a partial tear. That's what a bruise is. A bruise is a partial tear of the muscle, okay? So let's not go out there and write as if this is anything new. It's not. It's a very low-grade thing that has resolved itself. All right, listen. 
A fucking partial tear is not a bruise. <laughs> Will it show a bruise on the surface of your skin? Possibly. But what the fuck is he talking about? Now, I'm no doctor, John. But Sandy, do these guys not get coached a millisecond before they go on air or write a, a statement? Like, what the fuck is going on? Well, it's to me, it's just the continuing saga of the Mets PR department being equal parts incompetent and non-existent. Uh, depends on the day which one shows up or doesn't show up. Same thing with like the whole thumbs down bullshit. It's like you, you didn't talk to them at any point about any of this. And also not for nothing. I mean, another sign that they just need to clean house at the end of the season uh, in the front office. Sandy's clarifying all this stuff about DeGrom's injury after the fact, the whole time they let it with, well, we really don't know. It's like this mystery illness. His elbow hurts. We don't know. We're going to shut him down. Okay, so you did know. You just didn't want the fucking smoke that you were going to get by admitting it was his UCL because everyone was going to freak out and be like, oh, God, Tommy John again, blah, 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 worst case scenario. But now you just look like even more of an idiot fucking saying it after the fact, like, oh, well, it's fine. And, and let me just say, like, okay, Sandy, okay. But at least the Mets have had... Peter, 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 Pete Alonzo to oh, pick God up the slack Pete. of today's blunder by Sandy Halderson. <laughs> Pete has been killing it, man. We highlighted some of his numbers last week, and he has just continued to mash. He hit two home runs in the game tonight, which, fun fact, were his 100th and 101st career home runs. He became the second fastest person in Major League history to get to 100 home runs. It took him 347 games. Only person who did it quicker was Ryan Howard. It took 325. And I know things are rough for the Yankees right now, so here's a little manna in the desert for you. El Gary is number three on that list. It only took him 355 games, although Aww. I bet you wish he was doing it a little bit more often. Well, he did hit two home runs the other night. I mean, he couldn't possibly have played any better, and they still fucking lost the game, but I digress. Uh, where were his two home runs tonight when they could have used it, Emily? Well, you know, Boone inexplicably kept him on the bench after Cole came out and they kept Higgy in. I mean, I guess they have to rest Gary. He's a catcher, but the team Blame needs the manager. to win. manager. Typical casual. But the team needs to win these games, and normally I'm not that person, you know? And I understand on one hand that Gary does need to rest, but... He can't just take a few at-bats, like, uh, whatever. Actually, no, I shouldn't say that because he is a catcher. He does need to rest for a full game. Yeah, so that's a good point. So he can't then just go in, then, then that's not a day of rest right. where he has to catch tomorrow. So I get it, but I didn't like it. So yeah, man, I mean, just to sum it up, the Mets, I'll say this, a lot of the beat reporters, after every goddamn Mets loss recently, which again, there haven't been a lot, the Mets' margin of error is down to zero. It's not down to zero. They're not gonna win 24 games in a row, right? Like there's gonna be a few more losses. They can afford them, but they gotta place them right. There can't be too many of them. It's gotta be against the right teams, that kind of shit. So I won't say there's zero margin for error because that is logically incongruent. There's very little margin for error. We gotta keep winning, we gotta keep winning series, but thus far, the Mets have done what they've needed to do over the last week. We'll see what happens. And we certainly will see what happens because this weekend we have the last Subway Series of the year, barring a World Series that the Yankees and Mets both play in, which I guess Book is it. still oh, wait, possible, no. but <laughs> probably not. John and I will have the pleasure of talking about this upcoming Subway series with Tim Ryder on the Simply Amazing Pod. 
When are we going to be on that? I think tomorrow night, right? Thursday? Yeah, or we're going to go on now? on Thursday. I'm not sure when he uh, when he releases, but uh, keep an eye out for it. It'll probably be out a couple days after that. And I also had the absolute pleasure of being on the Shukri Wright podcast uh, with Shukri himself. It was just the two of us. We had a great conversation about the Yankees season so far, the second half and what's to come in the next month. And we also both uh, reflected on our personal experiences on September 11th because we're both New Yorkers. So it was a really, really awesome conversation. Easily one of my favorite guest spots I've ever done. So check it out if you get a chance. It's on my Twitter page and also on the pod's Twitter page. And on that note, let's get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Sammy Fonts. Hey, Em and John, it's Sammy Fonts. So I just got done listening to the podcast from this week, and I got to say, I'm a tiny bit upset with both of you, just but just a little bit. So I'm listening to your top ML Bays, and I cannot understand how on neither of your lists, our man Freddie Freeman did not make it. I hate the Braves with a passion. Hated them, I'm pretty sure, since utero. But Freddie Freeman, I'm absolutely in love with. Like, if he rolled up to my house today and said, Sam, it's me and you, babe, I'd say... Take me into the night, Freddie. Come on, y'all. You guys can do better than that. But I love you both, regardless. A few moments later. I will say, Sammy Fonts again, but I will say maybe if you provide me the rubric with which you established your base, then I would understand better. Like, I could see some of the choices if I understood, like, what exactly your scoring system was or what the categories were. Cause maybe Freddie doesn't fit them. But he, let's be honest, he fits them all. The rubric for me, personally, was... Be as homer of a fan as you possibly can and then throw in your all-time favorite player that is playing now, Manny Machado. And that was how I came up with my list. Sam, I'm not even going to give myself enough credit to say that there was a rubric. I'm just going to keep it as simple as Freddie's top five bay. He's not top three. I can't put a brave in the top three. You get it. Come on. He's totally top five material. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, he is definitely up there, but because I have American League supremacy situations going on, I wouldn't even think to include Freddie Freeman. I would totally forget about him, even if we extended it to a top five. Well, that just sounds like a personal fault. Sam, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Jerry Drobnicki. Hi, everybody. Jerry Drobnicki for Sports Phone. Back at 420 with a scoreboard update 9762525. Sports Phone extra has more scores and news. Like this. I just figured out how to wake and she does it up of a sound sleep or a fog. Just ask her this one question. Should Higgy Hagashioka catch Araldus Chapman also, just like Cole instead of Gary Sanchez? Ooh, ooh, I can smell the smoke. Honestly, Jerry, no, he shouldn't. If we assume that Chapman is going to be kept in a closer role moving forward, that means that the situations he's coming into are close games. And with the way the Yankees have been playing and how tight the wildcard race is, they can't afford to take Gary Sanchez's bat out of the lineup late in games that are close, especially if Chapman potentially can give up the lead and then the game is extended. So I think that... Gary would have to be playing the worst defense we've ever seen for a long stretch of games for Boone to even think about doing something like that and taking his bat out of the lineup in the 8th or the ninth or 10th inning of a game. Jerry, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Lance from the Bronx. 
Hi, how you doing? This is Lance from the Bronx, aka at Lance NYYC on Twitter. I don't really have any questions. I just really want to just get something off my chest and keep it short. I don't know what's going on with the Yankees right now. Um, I know that we just lost Lasagna. That's that sucks and everything. But um, our infield has just been looking atrocious. I don't know. Um, even Rizzo, that one game against Oakland, didn't look that good. But you know, it's just a shame when you don't have Gio Urshela playing the way he's supposed to, and then you have Glaber, who has been struggling all year. I mean, I feel like he has to get into a rhythm, but, you know, he just still struggles. And obviously he can't hit for power anymore, and he's basically a contact hitter who can't field. And that's not a shortstop. I'm so sorry. That's not. I feel like when we signed DJ, and, you know, forgive me for this, I, I, I love DJ. I love what he did for us the last two years. But when we signed him, it was a detriment to Glaber Torres' progression. If we would have just kept Glaber at second base, things probably would have been different this year for Glaber. Who knows? Maybe he'd have over 10, at least 10 home runs by now. Maybe it affected him both offensively, defensively. But however, it's just, it's just been really bad right now. And right now, I'm thinking that down the stretch, if we keep losing games like this with bad errors, bad defensive plays, get the last. Lance, I'm sorry that the end of your call got cut off, but I don't know what's going on either. I mean... Besides the obvious of the pitching uh, not holding up their end of things, the hitters not coming through when you need them to, it's starting to look like, and forgive me, baseball gods, for saying this, but it's starting to look like DJ LeMayu and Glaber were both juiced ball merchants. I mean, I'm hesitant to definitively say that for Glaber just because he's so young still. We forget that because he's been around and playing full season since he was like 22. So I, I feel like there's some up and downs that are naturally going to come as he's entering his prime. But DJ LeMahieu, on the other hand, is in his prime now. And the Yankees have him for another five years. So they're going to be paying LeMahieu $20 million a year to be literally an average offensive player. I mean, I, I don't know what they're going to do because you're right. I, I don't think that you can keep Glaber at short. I think that... They have to go out and get a shortstop. If if they see something where they see that maybe Glaber's just slumping, or if they're concerned that I, I don't, I don't see how they can't go get a shortstop. I mean, I'm also not hopeful for it because it's the Yankees, but I don't really like the idea of Glaber and DJ LeMahieu being the battery mates up the middle for now the the next five years or so. I'm gonna put on my tinfoil hat for a second here, and propose a conspiracy theory that the Yankees are purposefully tanking the shortstop position, just waiting for Jeter to get into the hall officially, right? No distractions, no like, oh, the next Jeter. No, 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 no. They don't want to touch that legacy at all. Let him get enshrined, number retired, all that stuff, and then they'll invest in a good shortstop. It, it's, it's a PR game, you understand. And then Glaber will turn into Alex Rodriguez at the plate and Andrelton Simmons in the field and just be the greatest shortstop who's ever lived. <laughs> Out of respect for Jeter, he's just been waiting. Lance, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Nick. What's up, guys? It's Baseball Nick 25 on Twitter. Feeling brassy today, thought I'd give you a call. Here's my hot take for you. If the Padres win the second wild card spot and they have a one game playoff against the Dodgers they're going to throw Joe Musgrove he's going to throw seven shutout innings Padres are going to win and then they're going to win the World Series that's my hot take if they can beat the Dodgers in a one game playoff they're going to take the whole thing let me know what you think peace I for one 
am fucking hoping that that happens because that would then open up the field for just anyone to win. And I know you want to believe the Padres would then go on a run and win the World Series, and that's definitely possible. But I just think that that makes it much more of an open tournament than if the Dodgers just steamroll everybody. And honestly, it's the Dodgers' fucking tournament to lose. They are clearly the number one seed. Well, actually, I'm disrespecting the Giants big time. But I, Yeah, I was going to say, not for nothing, it, all due respect to all these teams involved, if they squeak past the Dodgers in the wild card game, they are about to run into the brick wall that is the 2021 San Francisco Giants out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, they are not getting past the Giants, I don't think. I would fucking love to see it, though, just because Dodgers fans would be beside themselves if something like that happened and they would then all of a sudden hate the one game playoff. They hate everything. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong. If I'm watching a five game playoff, I want it between the Padres and the Giants. Fuck the Dodgers. Nick, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Bubak. What's up, kids? It's Bubak. Hey, uh, as some of you know, may or may not know, I don't know, uh, I am currently in the process of uh, working to become son-in-law of the year, helping my in-laws move from Glendale, Arizona, back to the great state of Nebraska, um, and in doing so, also helping them uh, remodel the home that they bought. Um, so this weekend, all weekend, I was in the uh, middle of BFE, Nebraska, with very little cell service, working on a home, and uh, I missed, I, I, I pretty much missed the entire Baltimore series, as well as uh, game one of the Toronto series. So if you guys could do me a favor, and maybe just fill me in a little bit on what happened. Uh, I obviously saw the box score, uh, but you know, the box score doesn't really say much. Uh, if you could, you know, kind of, kind of lean me in, kind of give me a rundown of what happened in game. Uh, you know, we lost the series to Baltimore. I get it. Uh, luckily, BFE Nebraska has uh, very little cliffs, so uh, don't have to worry about cliffs there, John. Hey, that's all I got, guys. I love you guys a lot. You know, I miss you, even though we haven't met. It, it's it's whatever, guys. I got to go. Bubak's out. Well, Bubak, first and foremost, I'm glad to hear that you're safe on the uh, on the flat plains of Nebraska. Um, as it so happened, all of the Yankees games this weekend were the same time as the Mets. So I didn't see any of those games. So I'm going to throw it over to my esteemed co-host, Emily. And I will tell you what happened this weekend and what exactly went down. It won't be about the Yankee games because, as I stated earlier, I didn't watch them myself. But what I did do, besides pound raspberry white claws, was for the first time ever, I rode on a ride-on lawnmower. And not only did I ride on that lawnmower, but I jousted using pool noodles, my friend, and on another ride-on lawnmower. Now, this was straight country shit. And honestly... I was very surprised, John, how difficult it is to control the ride-on lawnmower because it has gears to go faster, and I kept on thinking that it would be like a regular car. Like, when you speed up, like, the brake pedal controls the speed, how, like, the car is always wanting to move forward, and then you can gradually... Well, it's the opposite with the ride-on lawnmower, so I would shift it into, like, high speed, and I'd have my foot on the brake, thinking that if I eased up, it would then just ease forward. No, it would, like fucking lurch forward and like the front wheels would come up and then move me forward it was crazy well okay so first off i just need 
uh, DJ Bingington, help me out here. Can I get a Tim Allen grunt in reaction to Emily doing this? Because that's fucking hysterical. <laughs> uh, uh, um, so wait, so was did it have like a clutch, like a like a manual car? It kind of did. That's basically what have the you brake ever, was. You, hang on, do you know how to drive manual? No, I don't. Uh, okay, there it is. No, no clue. I mean, it didn't. The brake was also like the clutch, I guess, because it was just the one pedal and then it had a gear shifter that had like mm. zero or neutral and then up to five. And it was pretty fucking fun. Even at one point, they have like a hill in their yard. I felt like I was about to uh, tip over because I was going at the top speed and I was going down a hill and trying to make a left turn to go around a tree and I was like oh boy this is literally gonna fucking topple over right now now I get how all these accidents with ATVs happen when you when you say going at top speed I'm picturing from Austin Powers when the uh, when that <laughs> slow moving vehicle is heading no that is what it was like that is literally what it was like Bubak, you are already son-in-law of the year as far as we are concerned and we love you thank you so much for your call our last call is from Dave Hey guys, it's Dave calling the pod about obviously the Mets blown game yesterday. What are your thoughts on Edwin Diaz? I feel like the last two months he has just not been, I don't know, like a closer. For me, a closer should be someone like, oh God, we're getting into the ninth. We're great now because the closer's in, he's going to shut him down. That's typically what guys like K-Rod, when they were on Billy Wagner, all those guys would do. They would just overpower the hitters, but I feel like I don't know. Diaz has just been trying to fool hitters using his slider a lot. He can't throw strikes, or maybe he's afraid to throw strikes. Seems a problem with most of the Mets staff. They're just afraid to throw strikes, except for like maybe Loop and May, which I guess is a segue. Wouldn't someone like, I don't know, May, who was a closer before, might be better moved into the closer role? Are you ready to give up on Edwin Diaz yet, or do you still think he's our closer? That's it, guys. Love the pod. Talk to you soon. Dave, I think that's actually an excellent question. And yeah, Edwin Diaz has kind of forced our hand as far as asking that question now with his performance lately. It's complex, man, because yeah, I agree with you. Like a closer ideally should be, and I know you're going to hate that I'm going <laughs> to reference a Yankee here, but he's the gold standard. It should be a Mariano Rivera, right? Just like shut down, best case scenario I'm talking here. Not that it happens that often, but it should be just, you know, sure thing, he's going in, game's over type thing, right? That's exceedingly rare. It's tough to find that kind of consistency in a closer. We may never see it again, right? He was one of a kind. Now, that said, it's tough with Diaz because, yeah, he has those outings where it's just like, what are you doing? He clearly doesn't have it. And like you said, you know, when he doesn't have the gas, he tries to work around hitters and it often blows up in his face. But when he's on, he has absolute elite, like, top five closer shit. The problem is that he's not on consistently. And so that really, you know, you say you throw out May there. May on his best day can't touch Diaz on his best day. And I also don't know if May, May has maybe been a little bit more consistent than Diaz. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I don't think he's been so much more wildly consistent that you would throw him in over Diaz, right? Like that, it's almost like, that somewhat calculated risk of like, hey man, if Diaz is on today, if we get the Diaz that you know he's supposed to be, this game's over. But yeah, the, the tough part is he's not doing it consistently, but then if you take that away from him, 
are you irreparably damaging him mentally? You know, we talked a couple weeks back about how, you know, when closers are going through struggles, or actually more specifically with Diaz, the whole thing where when you put him in in the ninth, he's good when it's a save situation, but when it's not, he has problems. And it's the kind of thing where, like, if you're the manager, you can't play into that mentality. You cannot allow him to go down that path of doubting himself and like, oh, yeah, maybe I can only do this. Like, he's your guy. You got to trust him. And that, you know, that mutual respect needs to be established. And I think you got to ride out Diaz this season. You really do. Through the ups and downs, even with his inconsistency, I think he's clearly our best closing option. Because when he's good, he's unhittable. He just needs to be that good more often, whatever that takes. Yeah, I mean, not for nothing, but he's literally a top 15 reliever. I mean, he ranks number 12 in FWAR at 1.7. He Even ranks just overall, you're saying? Overall, um, yeah, all relievers, yeah. not closers. Right. He's number. He ranks number 12 in uh, K per nine with 12.93. He ranks number eight with 28 saves, and he ranks number 10 in FIP with 2.58. To put Diaz's FWAR into perspective... He, like I said, he's ranks number 12 with 1.7 FWAR. The leaders right now in the entire league are Loisica and Hader, and they are tied for 2.2 FWAR. So he's right up there. And like the Yankees see with the with Aroldis Chapman, and most teams see with their closers, to be honest. I mean, no one is Mariano. No one's going to be Mariano. They all have their fault, and they all get blown up every once in a while. But when it happens, even if Diaz is putting up goose eggs for 10 of his appearances, if that's bookend on either side by blown saves, that's all the fans remember because it's right in your face and it's always catastrophic because it's a high leverage situation anytime he comes into a game. So that's what we remember. And yeah, you took the words out of my mouth just in terms of like it's... It's easy to go down that hole, you know, when when you're watching one team, you know, you see all of one team's games, and so every time that that closer does fuck up, you see it. And the perspective is important to pull out and realize, like, every closer goes through that. This is baseball. Nobody saves 100% of their games. You know what I mean? Now, granted, you want him to save more than he's been, but still, it's important to remember how good he really is, and especially when he's on there's no one else you want out there. And if Trevor May were a better closer option than Edwin Diaz, the Mets wouldn't have been able to fucking pick up May because he would already be on a team and he'd be signed to a longer contract. So no, you absolutely do not replace 26-year-old Edwin Diaz who has elite stuff with literally anybody. Literally. You're not going to find someone better. Dave, thank you so much for your call. And thank you to all of our callers. You guys are amazing. Anyone else listening wants to get in on the fun, feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. Not that this needs any introduction, but as you all heard, our opening this week was none other than the flip. Rocky's great. Larry Walker, Hall of Fame (laughs) (laughs) introduction. We did listen to some Walker calls, but we knew that we had to go with Derek Sanderson Jeter, who, along with Larry Walker, will be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I believe tomorrow is a ceremony, Wednesday, September 8th. And John and I, we couldn't go up this time, even though I would have loved to, especially because of COVID. There was no way we were going to go because now it's the middle of the week. But we went a few years ago, John, DJ Bingington, and myself to see... Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza both inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe you did. I went to see Mike Piazza and Ken Griffey Jr. 
And it was literally one of the best weekends of my life. I think about it all the time, and I can't wait for the three of us to go back. But we did learn some things during that weekend because it was the first time any of us had ever gone. We didn't do too much research beforehand besides looking at the schedule of the weekend. And we figured this would be the perfect time for us to do our top six things that we wish we knew before we went to induction weekend. That's right, Emily. A little public service announcement for our fans. Even though this will be released after the induction ceremony this year, so keep notes for next year. Yeah, so so joke's on you if any of these come to bite you in the next 24 <laughs> hours. Um, all right, so the number six thing that I wish I knew before going to induction weekend, you're not going to see the plaque up close, especially not the new ones, and you're not really going to get a good look at the museum. It's crowded as hell. Everybody who's there, you know, if you're in Cooperstown, you want to get through the museum at some point during your weekend, right? Well, there's a lot of people that descend on Cooperstown that weekend. So you're kind of rushed through uh, the museum. Like I said, the plaques, especially the new ones, you can't get close to unless you're committing your whole day to it. So it's a great experience, but if you want to like see, you know, read every single uh, information card in the museum and nitpick and everything, go in the middle of winter. I literally felt like a museum exhibit because as I would be standing reading an, ex an exhibit, someone would be standing there staring at me, waiting yeah. for me to move. <laughs> the number five thing that I wish I knew before going to induction weekend is that you are going to bump into many former players. In particular, when we went, I literally bumped into Jesse Orozco. He was walking down Main Street. I was standing at the barrier right before the Hall of Fame parade, and he literally fucking bumped into me. And I was like, oh, Jesse, like as he's walking away. And that <laughs> happened with a shitload of players. And I realized how short Harold Reynolds actually is. He's a pipsqueak. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, some minor celebrity sightings, but I didn't want to, you know, slide against his height. Anyway, uh <laughs> The number four thing that I wish that I knew before attending Hall of Fame induction weekend is you gotta be open when it comes to your dining options, right? Because like I said previously, a lot of people descend on Cooperstown. The first day, if I remember correctly, we were able to get down in a bar and eat something and have a few drinks, but especially the day of the induction, it was a madhouse. By the time the thing was over, we were exhausted. Everything in town was packed. So you know what we did? We went to Olive Garden. And it was fucking fantastic because we were hot and sweaty and gross and starving. And yeah, we're from Long Island. We have high Italian food standards, but you know what? Any port in a storm and that Olive Garden slapped. The number four thing I wish I knew before Hall of Fame induction weekend. And honestly, I wish I just knew in life in general. We booked our hotel literally the night that they announced the inductees. I think that was back in January, the first week of January. I booked it then. The closest I could get was a hotel in Utica, New York, which was about 45 minutes away, and I booked it through Expedia. Now, that's like they give you a smorgasbord, and I just picked whatever the best one I, that I thought was the best one, and we get there. Turns out Expedia will give you a smoking room if there's no non-smoking rooms left. Now, first of all, I didn't even know that there were places in this country where you could fucking lay in a hotel bed and smoke and it's not against the rules. I didn't even know. And the section of this hotel was separated by a swinging door that yeah. had like a porthole window. <laughs> so the entire fucking hotel stunk like smoke. My big takeaway from that night, because it's also worth noting, we only did one night in that hotel. After one, we were like, 
fuck this, we're getting, you know, we're going somewhere else. I don't even remember where we wound up going, but it was much nicer. But I remember that first night, that smoking room was so gross, we literally took like t-shirts of our own and put our pillows inside the t-shirts just because we didn't even want to use the pillowcases. Like it was, ugh. Even put it this way, for a smoking room where it's like, oh, it's a smoking room, you just smoke pot in the room. You didn't even want to, it was so gross. I literally was a sweaty mess from that day and I refused to take a yep. shower because the bathroom was fucking disgusting. I also asked John to promise me not to tell any of his siblings, my other cousins, how uh, particular I was because I was acting like such a fucking diva that <laughs> weekend. Well, you threw yourself under that bus. I didn't say shit. All right. Uh, so the number two thing that I wish that I knew before I attended induction weekend at Cooperstown. The day of the induction, you're sitting in a field for like eight hours, just in the sun. There's no cover for shade, no nothing. So I wish that I knew to bring some sunscreen or like an umbrella or actually on top of that stuff, maybe like something to read because if you don't bring something to entertain yourself, they're gonna subject you to Laurel and Hardy's who's on first bit over and over and over. How, that must have played like 30 times and I'm not exaggerating. To the point where before, you know, like right before the speeches started, we were able to like recite the bit, like word for word. It was rough. And I should say, since you're in a big goddamn field, yeah, sunscreen, yeah, umbrella, yeah, some reading material, but more than anything else, if you're gonna be in a field for eight goddamn hours, Emily. The number one thing that I wish I knew before going to the Hall of Fame induction weekend at Cooperstown is to bring a fucking camping chair. Bring a camping chair. When you go to the Clark Sports Fieldhouse or whatever that open field is called, people go there the night before to put their chairs down. It's rows, a sea of thousands of chairs. They have different markers on them. Now, we didn't know this. Thankfully, friends of mine were also going that weekend, so they saved a spot for us, but they only brought two chairs for themselves. So John, DJ Bingington, and I sat on the fucking ground for eight hours in the sun, sweating profusely, and it was just... I I've never had a more defined... Um, racerback sports bra burn on my back because it was just unrelenting sunlight for eight damn hours. Now, all of that said, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Oh, without question. I'm actually, <laughs> it was great. I'm sad that we couldn't go this year and I'm hoping to go at some point in the future, in the near future. Hopefully, when we do breaking balls for a living, we will be going every fucking year. Because the people demand it. That about wraps it up for breaking balls this week. We want to thank our listeners. You guys are awesome. And we also want to thank all of our callers. Anyone else listening wants to get in on the fun, feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls Hotline a call. 631-820-7377. You can also find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod. And we want to thank our amazing and talented producer and engineer, DJ Bingington. You can find him on Twitter as well. At DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G. T-O-N, and we will catch you guys next week.